reaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Always an honor to be with all of you. Thank you for coming back. If you've listened before, if you're new, hope you, hopefully you're looking for a voice of reason, a voice of an American who cares about his country, who deeply loves this country. And while most of our issues focus on Islamic reform, on anti-Islamism, root cause of radicalization, also as a doctor, as a concerned citizen, as a conservative, I will often look at various issues of the day here on this program. And I think one of the themes is taking on the establishment, sort of the, the conventional wisdom, if you will. In this COVID crisis as a primary care doc, I have taken the opportunity to share with you some of my own sentiments. And it's not just simply because me and my staff and others on the front lines of this battle against uh, a novel virus, but also as a medical ethicist, as somebody that believes in and has always been involved in the care of patients because I want to do the right thing. I feel that ultimately the calling of being a physician, being a provider, is a calling that involves helping folks achieve those things that they feel keeps them in health, keeps them headed in the path to get closer to God, and allows their constitution, their personal health constitution, to be optimized through a ethical approach. And there's been a lot written about the COVID crisis and how we've addressed it and how how we should have addressed it and shouldn't have and, and what we're still doing. It's, it's in no means is it behind us, despite many of the statistics showing that the numbers have gone way down the incidence rate, be it by testing uh, um, percentage tests that are positive, be it by admissions to the hospital and especially by admissions to the ICU and death rates, et cetera. All these different statistics have been a crash course for the American population on epidemiology and medicine. And the first thing I want to talk to you about today in this podcast, in today's episode, is what is the ethical, what is the obligation of physicians during a public health crisis to direct, to provide advice and recommendations, and how does that advice become consumed? If we provide it neutrally, as many in the healthcare establishment did, they said they were providing neutral advice. Does that then truly translate into neutrality, where depending on which side of the equation you fall on public health policy, that uh, physicians then providing this neutral sense of advice can then claim neutrality and not own which direction society goes. Well, I think it's difficult to own neither direction or not own any direction if you don't take a side. But let's lay that out. First, the reason I'm bringing this issue up this week is, is finally... Now, I want to say finally, but there has been, especially on the right of center, there's been pieces written about what to do, the fact that economic lockdowns 
and the shuttering of businesses were going to cause other pandemics after the pandemic, and they're beginning to do that. Cancer care, heart care, diabetes care, surgical care deferred, delayed six months, if not 12 months, and what that does to chronic illnesses. Schools being delayed six months to 12 months, and what that does. The Wall Street Journal this week is reporting a 4% reduction in income viability for students if they don't get back to school before January. This week, the pieces in the Wall Street Journal, one was called The Failed Experiment of COVID Lockdowns by Donald Luskin. New data suggests the social distancing and reopening haven't, haven't determined the spread. Additionally, New thinking on COVID lockdowns. They're overly blunt and costly. Daniel, I'm sorry, Greg Ips reported that blanket costly business shutdowns, which the U.S. never tried before this pandemic, led to a deep recession. Economists and health experts say there may be, there may be a better way. The New York Post this week from Michael Barone notes, it's now looking like lockdowns may have been a huge, huge mistake. And as he says, certainly they were a novelty. We've never before responded to contagion by closing down whole countries. And as Barone notes, in historical examples, the 5758 Asian flu killed between 70 and 116,000. 0.04, of the population. Hong Kong flu killed about 100,000, 0.05% of the population. The U.S. coronavirus, 0.05% of the current population. And it's likely to go even higher. Same magnitude as the two flus. But is this because of the lockdowns? No lockdowns previously. Lockdowns this time we got the same. Was this virus more virulent? And all the massive closings. Are they to take credit for the same mortality as the flus in various pandemics? Or is that a lose versus a win? Our societies have changed. We're certainly much more risk averse. And as Barone points out, children aren't allowed to walk to school. Jungle gyms have vanished. College students are shielded from microaggressions. We have a safetyism mindset. That is so true. You and I were talking about that back in May and April as they were throwing out that we had to lock down because we can't even sacrifice one life. And this is not about sacrifice. It's about routine health, about routine health and illness. What do we do to prevent that as we have something novel that presented to our country in March and all of a sudden, they were throwing in novel prevention mechanisms that included lockdowns. But then the news at that time was about Bergamo, Italy, with dozens overloading hospitals. And policies were concerned about overloading the healthcare system, and the proverbial flattening of the curve was discussed. And then we started to have the shaming of people who would gather, and whether it's political or demonstrations or bars or restaurants, whatever it might be. 
And as Gregory Ip reported in the Wall Street Journal this week, he said they're overly blunt and costly. Alex Berenson, former New York Times reporter who's been against lockdowns from the beginning, makes the case that they simply delayed rather than prevented the infections, that the virus wasn't going to be defeated, that it was simply going to be delayed, and that we're still going to see these spikes, and ultimately we way, way overshot what flattening of the curve would be. And as Barone concludes, he says governments can sometimes channel but never entirely control nature. There's no way to entirely eliminate risk. And there's always something that gives and takes. Attempt to reduce one risk may increase others. And we may make mistakes. And this is what I said. But from my perspective, what I wanted to talk especially especially about is what is the role of the doctor? The public health experts, the physicians from Dr. Fauci on down. We can look at the data. I tell you to go and look at Donald Luskin's piece where he, from his company Trend Macro, an analytics firm, tallied the cumulative number of reported cases and looked at many of the various trends that happened with COVID-19 and its infection rates across the country. He said the only factor that seemed to make or demonstrate a difference across different states was the use of mass transit, which may explain New York City's spike in experience. And then the most interesting part of his data that he ran huge amounts of analysis on to observe the effects of caseloads of the reopening that began in mid-April. He used the same methodology of his previous analysis, but started from each state's peak of lockdown and extended to July 31st. There was a tendency, though fairly weak, for states that opened up the most to have the lightest caseloads. The states that had the big summer flare-ups in the so-called Sunbelt second wave, Arizona, California, Florida, and Texas, are by no means the most opened up. Politicized headlines notwithstanding, as Luskin says. So the point here is that there was no correlation between the amount of lockdown and the amount of opening up and how quickly the recovery happened and how quick the virus spread. And I have to tell you, as much as, yes, you want to avoid dense congested areas and you want to do mitigation it's mitigation it's not suppression and how much mitigation is appropriate he says that the lesson is not that lockdowns made the spread of COVID-19 worse although the raw evidence might suggest that he said but that lockdowns probably didn't help at all And opening up didn't hurt. This defies common sense. In theory, the spread of an infectious disease ought to be controllable by quarantine. 
And this is a novel approach. And I think if there's one thing, he summarizes it at the end and he looks at the data, etc., that proves his point. But he says, with the evidence we now possess, even the most risk-averse and single-minded public health officials should hesitate before demanding the next lockdown and causing the next economic recession. So the summary of 2020, ladies and gentlemen, it seems that as people come around to this and look at the data that in addition to the wound of the pandemic of COVID-19, we have a the most profound element of the disaster that has been 2020 has been a self-inflicted series of wounds of economic and public paralysis. Trillions increased in the debt, loss of jobs, businesses, small businesses, and elsewhere. Yes, the government tried to prevent that through the PPP protection, payroll protection program. But all of this is also going to give way to other pandemics, other psychiatric, medical, and other diseases. But I say all this to you because the central point as a physician, as an ethicist, a medical ethicist, I've been practicing medical ethics and consultations for over 20 years, is I ask you one question, and this is to the doctors out there, and ask your doctor about this. When they recommend things to you, whether it be surgery, chemotherapy, God forbid, treatments, medications, programs, diet, exercise, whatever it might be, at the core, during the civil rights movement in the late 60s, there was also the movement to begin what now has become one of the primary cornerstones of the academic practice of medicine, which is medical ethics. Now, you can see medical ethics in the literature for 100 years in Western medicine, but in the past, really, it, 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 it accelerated during the civil rights movement. We shifted from the era of Marcus Welby and the paternal era in which we gave patients medicines with just a, a, a cryptic name on it with take tablet A twice a day. Patients didn't really ask too many questions. The, the doctor was like everybody's uncle, everybody's dad who just was trusted. And physicians still are trusted, still a cornerstone of society, but there's become a significant movement for autonomy, for self-ownership, self-decision, with accountability through legal accountability and keeping doctors accountable through the court system and also public accountability. This is all good. I think patients that are informed that uh, now as they, we see a huge fractionation and fragmentation in the practice of medicine, that patients who aren't invested and engaged in their own care are going to see many problems, most of which happen because of poor communication between providers or between institutions and systems and elsewhere that fragment. But at the end of the day, the patient became, over the past 20, 30 years, the center, which it should have been all the time, but it took us a while to come to that, just as the civil rights movement moved the needle more towards morality and the treatment of our African-American population and other minorities. Similarly, medical ethics began to demand that physicians live up to our Hippocratic Oath, 
live up to our oaths, that don't impose treatments, don't withhold information, and allow patients to have the right of choice, to choose if they're going to accept what the physicians are recommending, to choose if they're going to get a second or third or a fourth opinion. But this does not mean that your, your physician cannot give you a recommendation because the pendulum swung significantly the other way for a while in the past 10 to 15 years in which because of the era of sort of the glorification of medical legal, whether it's through L.A. law or whatever other programs through Hollywood that came, all of a sudden the pendulum swung to where patients were just being handed a choice like medicine was a buffet and physicians were becoming more and more afraid to render opinions, firm opinions on what we believed. And now the pendulum swinging the other way as Obamacare evolves and medical, medical care and intensive care, we're finding that 50% of the trillions in healthcare dollars are being spent in the last two weeks of life. Somebody has to be making a choice about what is appropriate and inappropriate expenditure. And usually it's the folks with the most skin in the game that determine that expenditures which then ends up taking away autonomy from the patient. But the point here, as it relates to public health policy in 2020, is that where the rubber meets the road is what do we preserve? What will we stand for? What will we defend in the practice of medicine? What is our last stand One of the examples I use is, again, 30, 40 years ago, the court system, the Supreme Court ultimately laid down the limits by which a psychiatrist must reveal the threat that a patient may have upon another patient, upon society. It was not the American Psychiatric Society or Association. It was not physicians saying that you must... We must reveal the autonomy. We must reveal the information. No, it was the government's court system that mandated by law that psychiatrists that know that somebody tells them there's a specific imminent threat that they are going to kill another person then become accountable to report that immediately. And you can look at the court's cases, etc., and that has withstood, I think, multiple challenges. Why did it need the court system to tell doctors that somebody that could kill others or a mass murder? I mean, even in the shootings, I believe, that have happened after school shootings, mass shootings, in, in movie theaters in Colorado, they then found that, that the psychiatrist, after the shooting happened, received, I think, a manifesto or something from his patient. There was hardly a blip about whether that autonomy, that HIPAA, if you will, the Health Information Protection Act that tells physicians what we've known all the time, which is that we should hold patient privacy inviolable. Inviolable. And just like a journalist holds their sources inviolable, the reason physicians do that is you never, ever want a patient to believe that you will sacrifice their information for what you believe to be a better good elsewhere. So whether it's priests, clergy, journalists, or physicians, 
privacy allows us to not only maintain the trust and the respect and the integrity of the public, but it allows our professional standards and conduct and ethics to be beyond reproach, and we must defend those. We must become the ACLU, if you will, if that's what the ACLU is supposed to be about, though it has also become hyper-politicized and compromised what its standards are supposed to be, but that's a little political statement there. The reality, though, is that if we as physicians are to protect patient rights, we should do it as long as we have breath. Yes, we shall, by our Hippocratic Oath, not provide a medicine that harms and all these other things that are also principles that we live by, but at the end of the day, we must protect patient choice to reject or accept care. And I've had a discussion with you about assisted suicide. Now, I drew the line at that because we also, as physicians, have rights. The writing of a prescription that then gives patients the weapon by which they kill themselves is a breach of our covenant to protect life but that still doesn't take away the patient's right to kill themselves as much as we prevent and we have a sworn oath to, pre to preserve life if that suicide is based on pathology if it's based on a terminal illness patients can find other mechanisms and other quote-unquote providers to give them that beyond physicians but as far as COVID-19 in 2020 setting that groundwork of medical ethics and what it is, I found it surprising that from the brilliance of Dr. Anthony Fauci on down to the public health officers of state after state from Arizona to California to New York and on. And, and actually, I want to divide this up. The public health officers, they are not doing this from the bedside. They're doing it also as the sort of the public health folks, if you will. So that is the policy arm of government. But what about the medical society, the medical profession, whether it's organizations, specialty organizations, leading voices? I've talked to you here about how physicians that had the courage to take on the establishment of what they felt was science based on the need to lock down, the need to wear masks, the need to do many things that strangulated our economy. There were some physicians that believed otherwise. And all of a sudden when they spoke, such as the doc in L.A., his specialty organization, of which there's one, <laughs> this is not like just one that spoke out against him, his specialty organization of emergency doctors basically put out a scathing statement in three or four paragraphs saying that basically libeling the guy and saying that he does not represent physicians, etc., and on and on. What happened to diversity of thought? What happened to academic inquiry that we seek in all these medical schools and elsewhere? And that seemed to have been thrown out the window because of groupthink. But that's not even the crux of what I'm trying to talk to you about. That's, that's internal professional collectivism. I'm talking about our duty to our patients. So if society, and I had so many folks ask me, well, do you think we should lock down? And my gut told me no, but I would say, you know, listen, I'm not a public, I'm not a central planner. 
There are many aspects involved in this, but my opinion, if you're asking for it, is that we should not. Because you might be intending to err on the side of safety, but you end up causing many, many harms that you know you're going to cause. Because you think that lockdowns are more successful. And then later, if it's proven that it's not, you've caused all these harms. If it's proven that it would have been, then maybe in future viruses we can do that. In future pandemics. But it had not been done up until now. There was no reason to start now with such a draconian measure. But still, the crux here is where should we as physicians be? If I ask other doctors... Would they look their patient in the eye and tell them that their own job is more essential than the income of the restaurant owner, of the bar owner, of the shopping mall owners, of all the businesses that were shut down? This, this word essential is, is really cut out of the central planning mechanism of tyrannies. And we can provide, just like we do every day at the bedside, we can provide recommendations to our patients, and hopefully they will live by them and try to do them to the best of their ability. But when our recommendations become public health recommendations, that's fine. But if some patients decide not to close their businesses, we can say, well... These are the mitigation measures that you should do. But then government steps in and says, we're going to force that. We're going to shut down the businesses and find them, be it gyms, be it malls, stores, whatever it might be. We're going to start fining them and then physically enforce it through mandate of the law by police off, by police operation. And it is one thing, it is one thing for us as physicians to, to provide the, the ultimate list of measures that we think can prevent viral spread, etc. And we become the expert. We're the experts in this crisis. But it is another in which our recommendations then become tools for government mandates, fiat, and force. Now, you may say that physicians should stay neutral, and that's what many of my colleagues believe. Neutrality in the face of our advice, our recommendations being used to then extrapolate into draconian measures of shutting down businesses that based on people's livelihoods, because they start being diagnosed and labeled as essential or non-essential, or because they say that they're going to, the government does it because this is what the doctors recommend. Dr. Fauci says if it's not locked down, it's going to spread like wildfire. If you're not doing X, Y, and Z, that the doctors say it's going to do the following. So all of a sudden, we've jumped the shark. Physicians have jumped the shark. Unless you stand against that. And this is why I believe it's so incumbent to err on the side of patient autonomy. Because when we allow our advice whether it's a response of neutrality or a response of actually being in favor of government imposition and draconian measures, I think we've jumped the shark where we're no longer defending patient autonomy to make good or bad choices, 
but we are now defend people compare it to mandates for seat belts mandates for helmets i'm sorry there is a huge difference between the government using our recommendations to completely arrest the income of families to care for them to pay their mortgages to pay their health insurance and then become sick from other issues versus a government mandate for helmets, etc. And again, you can actually, many of us might believe that the government should be involved in that. Now, when the government ends up paying for most of the health care, the ethical argument against it becomes a little more difficult when it comes to helmets and seatbelts and things like that. But when it comes to public health mitigation measures, when we as physicians and so many doctors are saying, well, it's better if we stay six feet apart, it's better if you wear masks, you should wear masks, studies have shown, et cetera, whatever those mitigation measures are, vaccines, why not force vaccines on people? The vaccine's going to be out soon. If you're going to mitigate, if you're going to mitigate and, and justify the shuttering of businesses for four weeks, six weeks, 12 weeks, in certain states. Why can't you justify physically assaulting patients and then mandating vaccines? The slippery slope here is unbelievable. And this is why I believe we've jumped the shark. Now, you can believe that government might disagree with us and say, you know, yeah, the doctors don't want us to invade patient autonomy, to invade their businesses, invade their incomes, and they're against it. And this is why I think physicians, as much as we love each patient equally, we should stand by each one, whether they choose to mitigate or not, but we stand by their right to choose. Yes, we have a covenant to err on the side of life, but when that conflicts with the side of freedom via the collective, at no moment is there clearer leadership in that in the time of the conflict of collective life versus freedom of the individual. Because collective life was simply something that they kept saying was about science, but there was other science. They kept saying that they're going to follow the science and they make generic statements about, you know, you hear Dr. Fauci every few days, oh, it depends on the virus, what the virus is going to do. Well, what does that mean? So if all of a sudden you see some numbers that the data gets pushed out, that we some of which we find out the data was poor, wasn't even, it was duplicating, triplicating, and quadruplicating many numbers, that patients that had been tested, et cetera. So whatever that science is, half the data is garbage. We proved that the reports that were used initially to justify a lot of the lockdowns that came out of London was actually garbage data from a guy who actually used algorithms that Google proved were nonsense. And then we had a Lancet article that was based on bad data that tried to say that hydroxychloroquine and other drugs didn't work when, in fact, they might have. So a lot of this stuff, they say they're going on science, but it's this is why the patients, that's why I started from the beginning of the conversation, patients get second and third opinions. They get additional opinions. Society should get additional opinions. So you don't go and you... Use government coercive measures far beyond anything Western democracy should tolerate because you're saying that you're going to save lives. 
society may choose to do that and may choose to nuke its own economy. But the physician, the physician who deals with the cost between every patient, you know, I talk to them every day, do we do the generics or do we try the newer meds? And they, they then, cost becomes an issue for them. How much is their copay? Can we get a prior authorized? Can we get a, a exemption? And if we can't, I don't tell them to sell their home in order to pay for a medication that might be a heart med that's important, that might be a chemotherapy med that's experimental but is not being covered but yet is off-label, whatever it might be. Patients make their own economic decisions. And if government is going to step in on behalf of medical information, and use the medical information as the tool, as a bludgeon against freedom to force, to enforce so-called mitigation measures, we're no longer physicians for those patients. We become state agents. There has to be a firewall there. There has to be. And some have said, well, what if, okay, you, this virus is debatable of its severity. Let's say it was Ebola with a murder, with, with the death rate that this virus was killing in the amounts of 20 to 30%. I would tell you again that physicians should not be leading or even neutral about whether government should use it's executive order fiat to do away with balance of power, to do away with legislative debate, to do away with public discourse and debate on behalf of medical science, on behalf of medical recommendations. Yes, we should provide recommendations, but I believe it's jumping the shark no matter what the threat to say that we as physicians recommend draconian measures and economic shutdowns and lockdowns, etc. We might take our hat off as a doctor and say, you know what, I as a citizen believe it should be locked down because the death rate is so high, we need to stop the spread as quickly as possible. So we do it for two, three, four weeks max, or whatever. I was even on board for a few weeks initially because I didn't know we had the fear of God put into every one of us based on the way that this was being covered and what we didn't know about this novel virus but I never bought into more than four weeks, let alone six, eight, 12, and then relocking down and then the shuttering and discrimination of certain businesses such as gyms, etc. So we cannot let medical advice, no matter how clear it might be, become a bludgeon against the freedom of individual patients to make good choices, bad choices, and to do our recommendations and our policies that we think are smart. Yes, smart medicine is mitigation of viral spread. Smart medicine, smart healthcare, smart public health policy is to provide the policies. I would put my life in the hands of experts like Dr. Fauci any day. But I would not allow them to make policy decisions for entire societies. But the moment Dr. Fauci's recommendations tells me to shut down my office and just sit home hoping I get a check from the government of unemployment is when I say, no, I'll take the risk.
You might say that it's selfish. But it is not the role of the doctor to make overwhelming, overarching decisions about economics and family, family values and all the things that go into the process of shutting down an entire society. This is the issue where physicians jump the shark. Now, uh, not intending to generalize, many, many, many doctors disagreed with the lockdown, many expressed disagreement, and I think there's a silent majority that really didn't feel comfortable about it when some jobs were called essential and others weren't. The issue, though, is publicly, left and right, many of the states that shut down significantly were conservative states, supposedly run by Republican governors. Because they didn't want to be the ones to be said they weren't doing enough, so they had to do something. We shut gyms, even though there's no source found that the gyms were the were contact tracing sources of mass spreading. Yes, they're super spreader, super spreader type functions such as huge football games, music, concerts, events, things like that. Yes, that stands to reason, those kind of things. But we could have shifted all the costs we did in shutting down the economy and doing things like they did in Sweden, South Korea, and elsewhere that these pieces this week in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Post, etc., point out were countries that really might have had a little bit of higher spikes here and there, but their ultimate aggregate data was no different, if not better. Can our profession recover? I hope so. But I do think that we have some ground to make up when it comes to how we sacrifice patient autonomy on the altar of science of what we know today and our recommendations. That should never happen. Every other individual, every other group, union, whatever it might be, like the teachers' union screaming that they don't want to go back to school. Physicians, all of a sudden you saw health policy experts and others saying, this is the data and the benchmarks that should get schools back in. Where'd they come up with that? This isn't hard science. This is all new science. Needs to be studied 10 years from now. I guarantee you we're going to have different permutations of these benchmarks. But all I know is that they've locked up kids at home getting half, you know, half-assed education. They're working their butts off trying to get this right. But it's still not the same as in-person education and all the different problems that are going to happen from social isolation, etc., with no data to show that kids are affected at all. It's really about protecting the teachers. Well, they could have protected them. So again, whatever part of this puzzle you want to look at, it looks like medical recommendations and science of whatever it might be, somebody's flavor that they're interpreting is being used to lock down the freedom of parents, of families to make decisions. And we see some of the schools that are privately owned, that are not subject to government mandates per se, are all back in session and there's little reports over the past month that there's been any harm. So, to end, there's nothing I love more than the work that I do every day caring for patients, walking them through the difficulty of disease, of illness, of treatment, of health and wellness, and to say that somehow it's bad medicine or you don't care about your patients if you have a difference of opinion about the way our government, our society should approach pandemics is just absurd nonsense. We can have difference of beliefs. And I believe at the core of the covenant to care for doctors, to care for doctors, to care for their patients 
is the belief that we will stand behind the autonomy of patients to make decisions, economic, personal welfare, and health on their own. And we do it every day when we help them decide what they can afford and what they can't, but then they make the decision. We don't impose it through the fists of government, especially when it's about health issues that we are providing our advice for. Thank you for listening to me. I hope we can we can stand together in the principles that make us who we are as a country and reach beyond the inflammatory nature by which a lot of this debate exists and come to an agreement about prioritizing the principles that we believe in, be it wellness, be it freedom, be it liberty, be it free markets, safety nets, whatever it else it might be from the left to the right. But we come together with one thing, the belief that we each have valid opinions and we're equal and diversity is about diversity of thought and inclusion this is Zudi Jasser on Reform This always an honor to be with all of you God bless we'll see you next week Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network